I remember my mom and I going to the doctor when I was a kid, concerned that any illness could rob us of the opportunity to achieve our American dream. So I treat every one of my patients as if I were back in time, helping my mom and me. Staying late in the clinic to discuss someone's struggles with mental health, waiting on an endless hold with the specialist's office to ensure an appointment is on the books. Making phone calls to navigate clunky websites to get a patient a free COVID test. It's the least I could do as the poor kid who made it. There's an underlying assumption in burnout discussions that it can always be remedied with some notion of self-care. What's never spoken is that burnout is the remnant of a fire. What happens if burnout can't be reversed? What if part of me as a doctor has been fundamentally changed and can't go back? What if I'm charred? That was Sadakar Nudi, a resident physician in internal medicine and primary care at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, reading from his first opinion essay titled, I Worry That Burnout Can't Be Reversed and Has Fundamentally Changed Me as a Doctor and as a Person. I'll bring you our conversation after a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley, Chief Operating Officer at STAT. I'm here with Debbie Donovan, Global Head of Environment, Health, and Safety at Takeda Pharmaceuticals. Debbie, I've heard Takeda has made some bold environmental commitments. What are a few steps that the company is taking to reduce its environmental impact? Thanks, Angus. Takeda is dedicated to bringing life-transforming treatments to patients around the globe while working to create a more sustainable future. Last year, we became a carbon-neutral business. We focused on internal energy conservation measures and the use of green energy. We also invested in renewable energy certificates and high-quality, verified carbon offsets. Still, we know there's more to do. Takeda is committed to being net zero by 2040 and working to reach goals we've set in the areas of water, waste, and product stewardship. We're actively collaborating with industry groups to reduce our environmental impact by doing things like improving the recyclability of packaging and devices. We'll continue our efforts to mitigate environmental impact to create better health for people and a brighter future for the world. Thanks, Debbie. For more information, visit Takeda.com. That's T-A-K-E-D-A dot com. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Scarrett, editor of First Opinion, Stats platform for articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative perspectives to share about the life sciences writ large. It's great to talk with you, Sadakar. Thanks for having me, Pat. You know, in your introduction, you spoke about growing up, thinking about your family's American dream. Where did you grow up? You know, I came to the States when I was eight months old to a small town called Naugatuck, Connecticut. My mom and I came to rendezvous with my dad, who's been here, or who was here for a few years. Soon after we came, my dad lost his job, uh, grew up super poor, food stamps, Section 8 housing, um, parents divorced. It was really just me and my mom. She worked multiple jobs to put food on the table, and I just really focused on school. Um, 
Because my grandfather always told her, and what she always told me is, you know, education is is the path to success in the world. And so um, that was really been, that was really my, you know, focus growing up. And, you know, we didn't have much, but had hope and had a dream that things would be better and that education would sort of be the pathway uh, forward. And very fortunate to be here with you now uh, with an MD after my name. How does your experience growing up affect how you approach your work? I think my work is very personal to me. You know, the reason I wanted to be a doctor is really because of my pediatrician growing up. His name was Dr. Falk. Um, and Dr. Falk was a father figure to me in a lot of ways. Um, and, you know, whenever we were worried about something, Dr. Falk was always there to, to provide comfort and guidance and really just to make us feel better. And so seeing Dr. Falk, I realized, you know, I wanted to be a doctor um, and I wanted to be a doctor like him, sort of give back to people who come from where I come from. As a resident doctor, I, I spend part of my time in the hospital um, in a variety of roles and part of my time uh, as a primary care doctor in the clinic. And I work at MGH Chelsea, a few miles northeast of, of Boston, um, where I take care of folks who sort of come from where I come from. Um, with immigrant backgrounds, you know, coming from where I come from, I, I see myself a lot and see my mom, especially a lot in a lot of my patients. And in that way, I try to pay it forward. Chelsea was really whacked by the pandemic, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Yes, it was. It's, it's interesting, you know, in, in the beginning of the pandemic, I remember we had set up these um, tiger teams. Uh, we'd, we'd taken over one of the oncology floors and made it just a COVID floor because the, each of the beds had the ability to have negative pressure and therefore take, like, make sure the, the, the COVID particles didn't spread into the hallways. And, um, the majority of the patients I saw and my colleagues saw, you know, in those very first weeks of the pandemic came from Chelsea. It's very clear that the pandemic hit Chelsea the hardest of anywhere in the state and, it's not just true in the numbers, but, you know, in what I saw on the COVID floors and in, in talking with my patients who, many of whom had COVID, many of whom lost their parents and grandparents and uncles and cousins and loved ones to the pandemic. And so um, it hit very close for them, um, to be sure. Back in 2019, you were named a stat wonderkind for the research you were doing at the time. and. In a video, you mentioned a high school biology teacher as having helped you on the road to where you are today. I have a special affinity for high school biology teachers since I was one for 10 years. What was it that she helped propel you toward? Mrs. Neighbors was great. I think she saw in me things that I didn't even see in myself and um, really pushed and encouraged me to do as much as I could um, in the sciences. I mean, she knew that I wanted to be a doctor, and I think she did all that she could to put me on that path. I was in a uh, school in New Haven, Connecticut, which is sort of where Yale sits. And um, over the years, Mrs. Neighbors had put together a program uh, in coordination with uh, the Yale School of Medicine and their anatomy program to have we, us as high school students, sort of go to anatomy lectures and learn from the cadavers that the medical students were learning from. Wow, that must have been really cool. It, it, was, it was. It was quite the experience, you know. Um, but it really solidified my passion for learning about the human body and how it works and what happens when it doesn't work. So what does a typical day look like for you? 
maybe it would be helpful to give some context on like what residency looks like through like this complex matching algorithm. You rank places and they rank you and you match and then you go there for X number of years. For me, it's three years uh, for internal medicine and primary care. And you sort of do what you're asked of uh, in service of both your patients and trying to be the doctor um, that you're trying to be. And so my schedule now is it, it, it's in two week blocks. So every two weeks is a little bit different. Um, currently I'm on two weeks of sort of outpatient time where I'm seeing, where I'm seeing my patients in clinic. Um, the coming two weeks, starting this Thursday, I'll be working in the hospital, you know, triaging people from the emergency department to the intensive care units. The day in the life depends on sort of what rotation I'm on. Sometimes, you know, I have a more of a nine to five lifestyle in the clinic. And sometimes I work seven to seven in the daytime, seven to seven in the nighttime. Um, earlier years worked 30 hour shifts. I mean, it really depends on, on what I'm assigned to work on at that day and time. If you can't answer this or don't want to, that's fine. But when you close your eyes and your mind's eye, What's your picture of yourself during the toughest time of the pandemic? What's my picture of myself during the toughest time of the pandemic? Let me close my eyes and see. You know, Pat, as I just closed my eyes, I felt a lot of gratitude because you know, I'm just like a poor kid from Connecticut and I'm like very fortunate to be here and have the privilege that I've, I've uh, gained along the way. Um, and to be in the position to serve um, when I'm most needed, I think is something that, um, I take a lot of pride in. I think I view myself as someone who's just sort of doing their best to, to survive, you know, um, as we all are in our own ways. And that's sort of who I see as someone who has been doing their best and will continue to do their best to, to do right by others and to take care of himself, uh, and take care of his health. And no, I mean, I know how, health imp how important health is. I think it's like the most important, one of the most important things. You know, it's like love and then health. So you opened your essay with the sentence, quote, it took me four months to write this sentence. What happened four months ago that nudged you to write about your experience as a new doctor, as you say, bludgeoned by COVID-19? As COVID was happening last year, early last year, I, start, I was taking a little bit of notes uh, about how I was feeling um, and didn't really do anything with them. Um, and then earlier this year, I was fortunate to be chosen to this public voices fellowship from the op-ed project that Mass General is now in its second year of hosting. Um, and I was thinking a lot about burnout and uh, physician mental health. And initially I, I thought I would write like an op-ed about it, you know, um, but I realized that what may be more powerful and um, helpful for me uh, to process things is really just sharing my story. And it really started in the spring uh, of this year where I started writing stuff and then I didn't really touch it for four months. And then I came back to it and I'm like, wow, it's been four months and I've been like trying to work on this. And it was funny. One of my friends, I was telling him I was writing this thing and he, sound, he said, you know, sounds like you're too burnt out to write about burnout, <laughs> uh, which is where that line in the piece comes from is literally what my friend Christian said. And I was like, yeah, 
And as I came back to it, I'm like, wow, it took me four months to, to get back to this. And that's why I wrote, it took me four months to write this sentence, um, to really find myself in a place where I had enough capacity uh, to put myself and my feelings and my thoughts on the paper and to, to work through it, um, to convey it to a broader audience. Well, convey it you did. I mean, you were um, descriptive and graphic, and you really worked with the term burnout in many ways, which was impressive, and I think it really conveyed how you were um, feeling. Was there one episode or situation that you you said, holy geez, I'm burned out? Or was it a an accumulation of things. You know, my favorite, my favorite thing of residency has been going to clinic. Um, that's really why I became a doctor. And it's like the first time after all these years of training and working and doing research where I'm actually doing the thing that I want to do. Um, and then a few months into the pandemic, I just didn't want to go to clinic anymore. And it's like, what the hell has happened to me? You know, that's, that's really what I, what I was asking myself. Like, what, like, why don't I care about this thing that has really been the focus of my life uh, for all of my adulthood uh, and part of my childhood too? Um, like, really, what's happened? Um, and I think, you know, there have been experiences in the hospital as well that have sort of reinforced that feeling. But it's really my relationship with clinic that um, made it clear to me that something was a bit different in how I was feeling and thinking about things. You wrote about a patient named John and then realized that there were other Johns and they were all blending together. Can you describe that? Yeah. Um well, this John, his real name isn't John, but uh, this John, I think I took care of it. I think it was in May of last year, um, where we still really didn't have a sense of how to take care of people with COVID. Um, but it was really uncomfortable, I think, for a lot of us as doctors, where we tend to have uh, a set of knowledge about certain conditions and we have things that we do about them. Uh, if you have too much fluid in your body, we make you pee it out. If you have an infection, we give you an antibiotic to treat it. Um, but with COVID, we didn't really know what to do. Um, and so sort of this difficult situation where, you know, we're trying to grapple with what to do. The patient was, was too sick to really contribute. Um, the family is scrappling with what to do. They, they were too afraid to even come into the hospital uh, to see him, reasonably so. His sisters were elderly and obviously unvaccinated at the time because we didn't really have a vaccine, even maybe in development at that time. And so um, it was really difficult for all of us. Um, you know, he just got sicker and sicker uh, and eventually passed. And as I was thinking about that, you know, uh, I was thinking about how many patients that we saw were just like that. And there's so many. Um, I remember some of the patients I saw in the very beginning in those first two weeks, but many I've forgotten. 
many people in the ICU, you know, we give family members phone calls, you know, every day uh, to try to update them. And it's, it's terrible, you know, it's terrible. It's terrible. It's just incredibly tragic to say, you know, we don't know when they're going to get better. They bought it on the ventilator for a month. Um, we're trying these things. The numbers aren't looking good. Some patients, you eventually make the phone call to their families to say, Hey, I think you should come in. I don't, I don't think, um, they have much longer with us here. Um, and so, you know, doing that over and over and over again, it's, it's, uh, it's easy to lose track if you're not trying to keep track. And I think for a lot of us, keeping track of it may have only made things worse. You write about the long hours you invested in medicine and the sacrifices your family made being worth it because you could, quote, gain the agency that my background denied me, the ability to bring health to those most in need. COVID-19 torpedoed that agency. I have every right to be disillusioned. The pandemic has erased what I expected of myself. I was not a healer, just a messenger of death. Boy, that sounds bleak. Yeah, that's pretty depressing, isn't it? Um, yeah. But it, well, I was going to ask, it's, it's um, you know, that's a lot to juggle mentally and emotionally. You know, your aspirations and, and expectations for yourself on one side and what was actually happening during the pandemic. That must have been quite an internal clash. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I was even aware of it happening. You know, I think... We were just in day-to-day survival mode. In the beginning, you know, it'd be two weeks in the hospital. One week we'd be at home on backup in case someone, one of my colleagues got COVID and then we had to substitute in. And then one week sort of at home, but we were quarantined. So it's not much to do. You just sort of sit at home and read news stories about COVID and doesn't really, it wasn't refreshing in any way. Yeah. You can't see your family, you can't see your friends. And so um, it really took me, probably a year uh, to really have insight into how I was feeling and really have the opportunity and space to breathe a little bit. Because, you know, my experience of, of training to become a doctor is very much defined by this pandemic. You know, I remember how, how it was beforehand for like the, the, I don't know, it must've been like nine months that I had eight months pre COVID um, where I was learning medicine and I was doing my 24 hour shifts and, it was fine and I was learning and I was growing. Um, but I don't think anyone wanted to experience what we had to experience. And um, I don't think there was any way to really prepare for it. Um, and for how it would make us feel as doctors and as people and um, where that would leave us uh, looking forward. Because part of, I think many people haven't really reflected on it yet because they haven't had the time or space or even desire to, to face those things internally. Um, others are just too burnt out to do it. Um, and yeah, others are like, yeah, this is sort of what it is. And, you know, I hope things will get better soon. Um, but to try to come to terms with, you know, this is what I hoped things would be. And, uh, it wasn't that, um, I think is a continual process that I'm going through even now. You described in the opening uh, excerpt that you read, the assumption that burnout can be remedied with some notion of self-care. Your essay took a bleak view of that and felt like it was leaning toward the idea that it can't be reversed. 
Have you sorted out your feelings about that? No, I have not. I guess the question is more of like, where do we go from here, right? Like, I don't know if I'll be the same, but that may be okay. Um, if this is an opportunity to learn and grow and um, find a, a different, if not better version of myself, um, then I'll try to embrace that as the opportunity to do that. But I think it's it's hard, especially as a trainee who has like little autonomy over, you know, what I'm scheduled to do, uh, who has, I'm someone who has, my whole year is scheduled. I could tell you what, I, if you name the date, I could tell you exactly what I'm scheduled to do. To find the time and space to really reflect on things and to to think about how to heal, let alone heal. Um, I think that the time and space is few and far between. And so I think I'm hopeful that things can get better. Um, but I think it'll definitely take a concerted effort to make sure that's the case because I can't just assume that they will. You know, not long after your essay went live, I started getting emails about it from physicians and non-physicians. This has never happened before. Um, one person wrote, and I'm quoting here, I'm asking someone from STAT to reach out to him and guide him to find the help he needs to heal. He is drowning. How are you doing? I'm okay. Uh, I'm okay. Uh, I'm very fortunate. You know, I have the greatest mom in the world. I have a great support system. I have uh, a lot of good friends. I have a good primary care program director at Mass General uh, who's reached out. I have a good mentor in my clinic. So I th I'm doing okay. I've tapped into the resources available to me uh, to take care of myself. Um, I definitely feel better than when I drafted most of what was written. Baby steps, that's what you told me. You know, doctors and other healthcare workers often have this I can do it attitude. Have you ever thought about seeking professional help for burnout or anxiety or stress? And would you even feel safe doing that? Or is there kind of a professional stigma in medicine around reaching out for that kind of help? That's a really good question. Definitely there's a stigma. I think it's it's uh, softening. Uh, in the beginning of the pandemic, and even now I have a therapist uh, who I reached out to and was connected to, um, which has really been a boon um, to have someone to talk about uh, throw my feelings, which is why I feel like I'm, I'm in an okay place and definitely a better place than I would have been um, if I didn't have her as a resource uh, to to help take care of myself. Um, I think it's also hard. I think there's a lot of stigma around mental health. I think even if people, many of my colleagues try to get therapists and they're just not available. Um, I think there's a mental health access problem that's prevalent across the country. Even if there are people, then we work these really weird hours um, where access becomes uh, further an issue. And so it's hard. It's hard. And I think a lot of people are in denial or they feel like they don't need it. Um, and I think for each person, you know, their own, but um, it's definitely been helpful for me. You know, you just described every day, every week being totally scheduled. That must really make it difficult for somebody in your position who wants to or needs to take a leave to regroup and refresh, um, there must be real pushback against trying to do that. I think it sort of speaks to what you brought up, this culture of, you know, I could do it. Um, 
and I'll be okay and I'll just sort of push through it. Um, I don't, I don't know if, if people needed to take a break, if they, they would even ask for it or they, if they would feel comfortable doing so, um, which is really unfortunate. If you call out sick, one of your colleagues has to cover you. And so, you know, different people have different thresholds for, for doing that. I mean, definitely if you're sick, you should call in. Some people are sick and they don't call in when they should. Um, and I think that that's, that may be helpful for that moment that, you know, someone on backup isn't called in, but it's not helpful for that person to, you know, persist through their suffering, uh, physical or mental or otherwise. I think part of it's a culture thing. And I think part of it, you know, as a trainee, the, the schedule is hard and there's, um, there isn't a lot of wiggle room anywhere, really. Well, I know you're not an expert on, on medical education and, and residency programs, but if you had the keys to the kingdom, are there a couple things you do to change residency to make it more human or humane? Oof. Uh, the million dollar question, huh? I think like we talked about earlier, you know, I think this just like, you know, COVID affecting Chelsea, there being, you know, systematic problems. I think there are also systematic problems here that uh, need systematic solutions. I think first, it's really the like a question of like, what do we value? This 80 hour work week thing is thrown out a lot. Like we shouldn't be working more than 80 hours a week, averaged over, you know, four weeks in a month or a four week period. Um, you know, but what if the, the value instead was how do we maximize your training and the care of patients and your care of yourself with spending as much time in the hospital as you really need to do that? Uh, making it less about uh, trying to work a certain number of hours to get a certain amount of experience and more about thinking about you as a person and not just a resident, um, not just like a worker bee, but like who you are as a human um, wearing that worker bee suit, wearing that white coat, uh, throwing on that stethoscope or those scrubs. Um, so I think one of the first things, just like a cultural shift in thinking about how we train people uh, to take care of people. Um I think piggybacking on what we talked about a couple of questions ago, Pat, um, making sure there's access to, to mental health providers. Um, I mean, I think every resident should be assigned a therapist uh, when they come into residency and should be an opt-out thing, you know, um, pre even before COVID and after COVID, there'll always be difficult experiences when you're working a lot of hours a week and people die that you don't expect to die. And I mean, I could tell you many sad stories uh, from even, you know, in the last couple of months that, um, that I've experienced, my colleagues have experienced um, and to have a, an established outlet for addressing that, I think is helpful. Um, and then I don't really know, some people have calculated like how much do we make? an hour as a resident. Um, and I don't know the answer to that, but we work a lot. A lot of people have a lot of loans. Um, and I think it's hard to, to make sure you have like firm financial footing um, when you put that much of yourself into work every day. Um, so I don't, know the, I don't know the answer to like the salary question. I think a lot of that's determined by powers that are even beyond the hospital. Um, but just like raising that as an option, you know, off the cuff here uh, is another thing. But I guess that would be my, my those three things. I guess that would be my three things. You know, the COVID-19 pandemic has 
left almost everybody, physicians, not physicians, feeling like we just need to get through this and then we can do all the things we want to do. Reach out to friends and family, find love, relax. From your essay, it sounds like that's a common feeling for residents too, regardless of the pandemic. How do you deal with that feeling? Because life isn't on pause, it just keeps going. I think that's a really hard question, Pat. Um, and it's one I'm like continuously trying to find the answer to. It's, you know, how do you find meaning and value in your life when a lot of the things that you previously found a lot of meaning and value in may not be as available to you as they once were. And I think it's like a very personal thing. So I think everyone has different thresholds for, you know, risk tolerance and acceptance and what's important to them and what they're willing to sacrifice or um, put themselves through. Um, you know, residents are humans. Doctors are humans. We have the same we're all humans, you know, I don't think there's any, any difference there in how we think about and approach life and what we want and need. I, and I bet many listeners, are saying prayers and sending good thoughts that, unlike charred wood, burnout for you will be ephemeral and you'll be restored, though unquestionably changed. Thanks, Pat. I hope the same. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Alyssa Ambrose is the senior producer, and Rick Burke is the executive producer. I love to hear from listeners. Please let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show or what topics the podcast should take on. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com. And if you have a minute, Please leave a review or rating on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. That's it for now. Be well during this strange and uncertain time. Mm -hmm.